Amen. Thank you, Jake and Emily. Wonderful singing, as Jake said. I know that was a newer hymn uh, that we just sung, but wonderful words and uh, sung so well uh, together. And we thank the Lord for our music ministry. And uh, my daughter uh, goes to a church down in Greenville, South Carolina, where the music pastor taught us as preacher boys how to lead singing. He said, just wait, you're going to be in a church one day and you're going to have to fill in or there's not going to be a music pastor and you're going to have to learn how to bounce the ball. And so we had to bounce the ball in preacher boys class. And this was back in the days of the overhead projectors. Now we have PowerPoint and all that cool stuff. But we had the overhead projector and uh, the, the professor came in and he, he made us all stand there and wave our arms and uh, he graded us as best he could in that, in that room. And we had to follow as uh, he put that up on the overhead projector. And uh, so I know that it can be a little intimidating sometimes to stand up in front of everybody and to uh, sing out and to wave our arms and to lead. And I appreciate uh, those who accompany and those who are involved in our music ministry. Uh, music is uh, not the most important part of the church, but it is a very important part of the church. And I'm thankful for the good music uh, that we have here and for the way that it encourages us and blesses us. And it's important for us to be able to sing together and to worship the Lord together. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We spent really the bulk of last Sunday's message in just two verses. Verses 18 and 19. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world... The world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That's a strong word, that word hates. It's redefined and reinterpreted and misused so much in our culture today. Just a simple disagreement now is considered hate or wanting certain groups of people to no longer exist just because of a disagreement. Our, our world has, has taken this term and has misused it and redefined it and is reinterpreting it in all kinds of different ways. Christ, of course, uses this here because the world does hate the Word of God. The world does hate the truth. The world does hate those who represent Jesus Christ to the world. And the reason is ultimately because they hated our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ before they ever hated us. I know that's a hard thing for us to fully comprehend and to grasp. As we talked about last week and as Jesus uh, even said down in verse 25, they hated me without a cause. The hatred of the world for Jesus Christ, for the word of God, for us as followers of Jesus Christ, the hatred is because of the sinfulness of man. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So we have to come back to the world, excuse me, we have to come back to the Bible's definition of hate and the Bible's definition of the world and it helps us understand how it is even possible that the world would hate the very Son of God who came And died on the cross for our sins, who came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we looked last week at these ways in which the world hates 
Christ, hates God, hates the Bible, hates the followers of Christ. We looked at what the world is as described in the Word of God. We talked about the world being defined as the lust of the flesh, idolizing pleasure. We talked about the lust of the eyes, the idolizing of possessions. And we talked about the pride of life, the idolizing of power. And we see that so clearly all around in the headlines and even more even in American culture, which used to be very much taught and instructed by Christian principles and biblical values. And now we are, it seems, 180 degrees removed from that. And now it is Christians that are being called the haters. It is Christians who are being called all kinds of uh, different names and are being told and saying, uh, the world is saying about us as believers and what we are doing today calling us fools or foolish and calling what I'm doing as a preacher in the preaching of the cross, calling it foolishness and saying that we need to be progressive. We need to get caught up with the times. And we're seeing in America things that we had never seen before. We are experiencing a measure of hatred from the world that we probably didn't experience 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago or even 10 years ago in some cases. But the word of God is clear about the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 is where we get those three phrases that I just used. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we looked last week at how the world is the enemy of God. James 4 and verse number 4. We looked at how the world has a willing ignorance of God, suppresses the truth. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 12, and 1 Corinthians 3 and verse number 19. We also saw last week that the world is condemned. The world is condemned, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 32, where that verse speaks of the condemnation of the world. In 1 John 2, 17, the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We also saw, fourthly, last week, that the world brings death. The world brings death. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 talks about the sorrow of the world worketh death. Galatians 4 and verse 3 speaks of the bondage of the world. Galatians 1 and verse 4 describes the world as evil. 2 Peter 1 and verse 4 describes the corruption of the world. And 2 Peter 2 and verse 20 refers to the pollutions of the world. So the world brings death. And then, fifthly, we looked last week at how the world hates Christians. Jesus himself said, marvel not. In other words, don't be surprised that the world hateth you because it hates me first. The world hates Christians. The apostles for preaching the gospel were described as a spectacle unto the world, a mockery to the world. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 13, Paul referencing how the world describes the apostles and proclaimers of the gospel, and they are described as the filth of the world. That's the way the world looks at believers. That's the way the world looks at Christianity. That's the way the world looks at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now I realize not every unsaved person is that is is that antagonistic 
towards believers, towards God, towards the Scripture. Not every unsaved person is in that kind of attack mode and is an activist against Christianity. I realize that there are unsaved people out there who are moralistic and they see some decency and they, they, see, some, uh, they see Christianity with some measure of respect. As a Christian school principal, there would be times that we would enroll students in our Christian school. And I, I knew that the parents and uh, even the, the children, especially in the elementary and lower elementary, I knew that the, the students were probably unsaved, that the parents were probably unsaved. Our Christian school was not in open enrollment with evangelistic outreach as our primary goal. As the students got older, we did more vetting of the, the parents and the students. But we understood that there were people who sent their kids to our Christian school because they wanted a safer, cleaner, nicer, more respectful environment. And I would even have sometimes in the interview, as I would pick up on where these people were at in their spiritual life, I would try to share the gospel with the parents as I could kind of figure out where they were. But there would be parents who would say, I want my kids to have God in their life. Now, sadly, some of the parents, they wanted nothing to do with God. But They wanted their kids to have religion. They wanted their kids to have God. They wanted their kids to grow up with some measure of morality. But they themselves as parents, sadly, many times, uh, they didn't really want those kinds of morals and those kinds of values for themselves. But they sure wanted it for their kids, especially as they were little. And so we had to deal with some of that as the kids got older and sometimes the parents we're not living right, and no wonder the kid was having trouble in the classroom and had a rebelliousness or was disobedient, and then the parents, we would have to deal with them. And so there'd be times where I would have opportunity to uh, do some parenting uh, from my office or in the classroom even, or as I met with parents. There's an unsaved world out there that not everyone is antagonistic toward Christianity. There's a recognition of the morality and the decency and so we're, we're seeing in some places, some Christian schools and private schools that have a morality and a decency about them and some rules and some standards and some decent values. We're seeing Christian education and private education, especially Christian education, in many, in many cases, it's booming. Uh, there's, there's in, Amer- in, in, in Indiana with the voucher uh, system, I know of some Christian schools that are uh, in the four or five hundreds or over a thousand students now. And they, they're building new buildings and they're, they're adding because there are people out there who say, okay, I want my students to have some Christian values. And I realize that's not always just in the Christian schools. There are uh, some uh, public school systems that do a better job of, of teaching uh, moral values. But my point is this, not every unsaved person out there is overtly antagonistic toward God and toward Christianity. But our sin nature is. And that's the thing that we have to keep coming back to and recognizing that our sin nature is anti-Christ, anti-God. And in our sinful condition, we're described in Ephesians chapter 2 as enemies of God. I know that's not a picture that we like to paint of ourselves. 
Because not every unsaved person, and even maybe some of us in our unsaved state, we didn't see ourselves as particularly in, a, uh, in, in animosity against God in the Bible. We may even had some moral upbringing, maybe even some religious upbringing. But an unsaved person, without Christ, an unsaved person is trying to get to heaven on their own. And we're told that our righteousness, as an unsaved person, our righteousness is filthy rags. Disgusting types of rags, cloth, that would be thrown into the landfill. So putrid, so full of stench. We had a diaper pail in our garage as the kids were growing up. And I don't care what they tried to do. If you've ever had, seen some of those diaper pills, I don't know what they have today. It's been a while since we've changed a diaper on one of our children. Thankfully, it's been a long time. But they would have all these kinds of things. You wrap it up and vacuum seal it and then put it, no, not, not quite that bad. But, you know, they would have these diaper pills, and we had one out in the garage, and, of course, it was out there in None of us, neither, neither one of us, and especially as the boys got older and they were dealing with their, their younger, or, or Emily, and then dealing with their younger siblings, they didn't want to be the one to take out the diaper pail. It was repulsive. It was disgusting. Uh, we tried the one that sealed it off and would somehow, I guess, try to tie, but those, those were such a pain, and the bags got so expensive, we just eventually went with a, a separate can out in the garage, and we would throw it in there, and then one of us would have the duty of taking that and holding our nose or turning our head away and tying that thing up and getting it out to the trash can outside. Or we would sometimes just go straight outside with that. We don't like to think of our righteousness as being dirty diapers, filthy rags. But that's what we are without Christ. That's what our righteousness is. That is ultimately where the rub is, where the antagonism is. And we do a disservice in our evangelism, if we don't preach who Christ is in the true condition of man. And we can have all kinds of campaigns and all kinds of efforts to make people like Jesus better, to make Jesus appeal more to the unsaved. But ultimately, the bottom line, it comes down to we must be faced with our sin. And only Christ is the answer. And it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And the light of Jesus Christ shines on the sin of this world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's where the world ultimately hates Christ. Because he exposes our true condition, our sinful condition. But we are not left without hope. We go down in this passage and we see that Christ is giving the disciples training, information, instruction. He's tutoring them in preparation for what they are going to face because they are going to be proclaiming the truth regarding Jesus Christ to a Roman world that would eventually bring persecution. 
And almost, as far as we know in the historical record, almost all, if not all, of those 12 apostles were martyred for Jesus Christ. We also are called to be witnesses. That word witness in verse 27 is the word from which we get our modern day word martyr or martyrdom. Not every witness of Jesus Christ is murdered for his faith or her faith. But we do see examples in the scriptures like Stephen. We understand by the historical record that there were most if not all the apostles murdered for their faith. We know John the Baptist was beheaded. James murdered for their faith. But we also are given the same commission as the apostles to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, to share the truth of Jesus Christ, to live the truth of Jesus Christ. You know, casual Christianity, customer service Christianity, a a, a moralism does not save. We have in our world today a very pragmatic, superficial Christianity in far too many places, especially here in America, where it is a mile wide, but it is only an inch deep, where the truth regarding our sinfulness, regarding Jesus Christ, is kind of masqueraded and hidden And then later, when everybody feels really good about themselves, then maybe the hard truths of the gospel can be presented and people will accept it. And that's the wrong philosophy. The seeker-sensitive church movement, the emergent church movement, all these different pragmatic, trendy movements have done a disservice to evangelistic outreach. We must boldly compassionately, with love and care and concern for the souls of men, continue to declare the truth of the Word of God, the truth of the Gospel, and declare who Jesus Christ is. Christ did nothing wrong. He was completely sinless. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He shared the truth with compassion, though it was stern at times, though it was very pointed at times. Christ always gave the truth in love, and yet he was hated. He was taken by his own people. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He went back to Nazareth, and he said that a prophet has no honor in his own country. They practically ran him out of the synagogue and picked up stones to kill him. Because he didn't meet their idea of what a Messiah should be. Or whatever the excuse that they gave for why they rejected Christ. They hated him even for being the carpenter's son, for being from Galilee. For exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. For exposing the sinfulness of man. But we are witnesses like the apostles I know that specifically in the context, he says in verse 27, ye also shall bear witness, but that commission is to us today. We have that same commission. And the world may hate Christians 
But we understand again that the world hates Christians because it first hates Christ. But we cannot lose hope. Even as we see the walls closing in around us, so to speak, in our own culture that we never thought would happen. Even as there are places around the world that to this day still suffer religious persecution, where there are closed countries, where there has to be underground churches, we cannot lose hope. Because we read the promise, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, in a few weeks, in John 16, in verse 33, These things I have spoken unto, me, unto you, excuse me, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 1 John 5, in verse number 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Not faith in ourselves, not faith that we muster up and we just, you, you know, yay raw, let's, 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 let's kind of get it, you know, excited and, and we can do this. Not a pep rally kind of faith where you jump all around and you throw sunflower seeds like the baseball teams do and then run out on the field. Not that kind of a faith but a faith in Christ, a faith in Jesus Christ, a faith in God and His Word and all that He is and all that He has revealed in His Word. This kind of faith overcomes the world. Who is He that overcometh the world but He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5 and verse number 5. So we see, first of all, in this passage, we see the expectation of persecution. All this introduction has been to once again bring us back to this reality that as the world hates Christians, as the world hates Christ, as the world brings antagonism and animosity against Christ, we don't lose hope, we don't give up, we don't put our heads in the sand, we don't go find a monastery or a cave somewhere and hide from this world. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. But we understand there is going to be some measure of resistance. It's just going to happen. If it happened to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then it's going to happen to us. And that's what Christ is preparing the disciples for. There's an expectation of persecution. Verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. John would repeat that in his epistle in 1 John 3 and verse 13. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Marvel not. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. I know our persecution, especially here in America, it's very minimal compared to what Christ went through, compared to what the apostles went through, compared to, when he, to, to, compared to what many Christians have gone through in church history. I realize that we have been greatly blessed, especially here in America. We have not had great levels of persecution. But we know that there is increasing pressure, there is increasing animosity Alliance Defending Freedom, I follow them on social media, I'm on their website, I get their newsletter, and Alliance Defending Freedom is just one of several legal organizations that are 
taking a stand for Christian liberty and are doing all that they can legally within the confines of the law to bring protection to our free speech and to our religious liberty. And there is a reason our founding fathers put religious liberty in the First Amendment. Because religious liberty is ultimately the key to all the other liberties. And if you don't have religious liberty, then you, in a sense, don't have any liberty at all. So we understand that we're dealing with this at levels that we never expected. But again, Christ taught us. He taught the disciples and taught us by the preservation, the inspiration of God's word, that we can expect persecution. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Persecution may take the form of laughter, It may take the form of dirty looks. It may take the form of loss of certain peer groups or friend groups or social status. It may take harsher forms, such as the loss of a job, the change of a career, a financial setback or loss. It could even result in prison, torture, or death. I experienced it just on a very small scale at our Christian school where I grew up. I'm thankful for my... Christian upbringing. I'm thankful for my Christian school. But I would sit at the lunch table and the boys would bring up things that I felt like were completely inappropriate. And I would basically tell them to shut up. And they mocked and ridiculed me until the point I eventually just went and sat with a bunch of junior hires and a couple other guys that we could have a decent conversation without these other boys bringing up something disgusting or vulgar or inappropriate. I'm thankful that one of those guys that I sat with is a pastor in Canby, Indiana, and we are still friends to this day, and he continues to take a stand for what is right. And Tim and I sat at the lunch table, and we decided we are not going to sit with those guys and deal with all that nonsense that they would talk about. And that was at a Christian school. I dealt with dirty looks. I stood up for a teacher one time. The kids in the class, there were a few boys that were just mocking the teacher, mocking him. It was awful. And I raised my hand and I spoke up and I said something in front of that class and it got deathly silent. And those three boys looked at me and if they had daggers for eyes, they would have stabbed me. And I walked out of that classroom and I don't think they ever liked me again, but I didn't care. It was wrong what they were doing to the teacher that day in the classroom. I couldn't put up with it. I have only experienced a small measure of persecution in my life. I've been laughed at and looked at funny because I'm a preacher, because I'm a preacher boy, because I sat at the, uh, the conveyor belt working a job between semesters of college, and the person on the other side of the conveyor belt was asking me about my college and my standards and what I did for fun, and I told her what I did, and She described what she did at her secular university and the way that she spent her weekends. And I just looked at her like, no, I don't do any of those things. And she just looked at me like, when do you have any fun? 
And I just tried as best I could to describe, I have lots of fun, I have a great time. I don't need any of those things. I don't need to do any of those things to have fun. I have a great time. My mom and dad sometimes and my sister, we just sit down and we watch a good wholesome movie together or we go out to eat together or we just go get ice cream together and we have a lot of fun. We have a great time. Me and my buddies, we go and watch a baseball game or, or something. We have a great time. We don't need all that other stuff. And she just thought that was the craziest thing. You would think that I was an unidentified flying object who landed and I was some alien life form. But I had no desire to live the way she lived and the way she spent her weekends and describing the things that she went through on Monday morning as she woke up from all that she did from the weekend and her life was miserable. But she was trying to paint it as fun. And I was like, no, that doesn't sound like fun at all to me. We experience that in our workplaces. We experience that where we go. We have to make decisions about how we're going to interact with the world. We have to make decisions about biblical separation. And we can draw the lines in all kinds of places and argue and fight. There are certain things that are clearly identified in a part of the world's activities that we need to be separated from. And when those who identify themselves as born-again Christians in some surveys are saying premarital sex at the rate of 40% of those who identify as born-again Christians in some surveys... 40% of them are saying it is okay to have premarital sex. Then there is something greatly wrong with Christians who have more identification with the world than they do with Jesus Christ. And maybe they're not even saved at all. We finished last week with Paul's statement about being crucified unto the world. And we have too many believers who they don't suffer any measure of resistance, any measure of persecution, because they pretty much live like the world. And they're afraid of ever standing up for what is right, ever speaking up for what is right, ever declaring the truth about the Word of God. And I've seen celebrities and superstars who will compromise. I've even listened to a pastor on a TV station who had a softball thrown to him where he could have declared the gospel in the midst of a very difficult situation his community was going through, and he whiffed on it. He struck out. He totally sidestepped the gospel. When he had an opportunity right there on television to declare the truth regarding Jesus Christ and the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. I've been disappointed at so-called Christians, celebrities, and superstars who won't even take a basic stand on clear principles, commands, and promises of the Word of God. I was listening to an evangelist one time, and he, was, he had been at a Christian school, and the Christian school principal was bragging about how they didn't have any rebellion in their Christian school. And I was like, I'm a Christian school principal, and I got my... I'm up to here with rebellion in my school. I'm dealing with kids all the time and parents, and He was telling me, this evangelist was telling me that this other Christian school, the Christian school principal was bragging that they didn't have any rebellion. And then this evangelist said to me, well, when I went there and I saw the way the students acted, I I saw what he was talking about. Because they basically did everything that the world was doing. Christian in name only, pretty much live like the world, have very few rules. Well, yeah, there wasn't any measurable rebellion because they pretty much had adopted the world's standards. And I thought, what a shame. What a shame. Christ knew that the disciples were walking into 
a level of persecution that would really go on until about 313 A.D. when Constantine made Christianity legal. So for about 300 years, there was a measure of persecution. If you've ever taken the time to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, some of the horrible things that were done to early Christians. I'm not here to be a critic of this UFC and WWE and WWF. WWE and WWF is a bunch of fake anyway. And I don't know, UFC is just brutal and bloody fighting. But in the Roman gladiator world, they would take the Christians and put them into the amphitorium with the animals. And their fun was to clap and cheer as the animals ate the Christians in the amphitorium. It's been said that Nero and Diocletian and some of those Roman emperors would literally drive a stake through Christians and grease them with oil and put them up as the lamps on the roads and light them on fire at night. If you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it will help you. It will give us a new appreciation for our faith and for the freedoms that we have. There's the voice of martyrs that we can subscribe to. I have that, and I'm not saying I agree with everything about voice of martyrs, but they recently had the anniversary of Richard Wormbrandt, who was a Romanian pastor who spent 14 years in the Russian gulag, being tortured for his faith. I couldn't watch. I, could, I made it about 15 minutes into that Christian film. I couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch as the father watched his son being beaten. I couldn't stand it. I had to turn it off. Maybe it was a little too realistic. But I couldn't, I couldn't handle it emotionally as the father was beaten and his son was literally tortured in front of him as... Richard Wormbrandt was told to recant his faith and his son was screaming as they did horrible things to his son. And Richard Wormbrandt continued to take a stand for his faith and would not give in to the communists. He would not deny Jesus Christ. I don't recommend that you watch it. If you choose to watch it, be prepared. The Richard Wormbrand story is just one of many who suffered in the USSR. We can talk about the apostles, Stephen, early Christians, John the Baptist, James. We can even talk about the Puritans and the pilgrims. Do we even realize the pilgrims came to the United States? I know it was the New World at the time in 1620. But they came as a result of a measure of persecution and separation from the world. One of the founding principles of our nation that is being lost as we are pushing God away and pushing God to the vestiges of society or literally attacking God-fearing Christians and believers, and denying the word of God, we are losing our religious freedom and our religious liberties. Persecution may come to the United States. It's come in some measures. Jack Phillips won't bake a cake and put a customized message on the cake and has been sued at least three times and is continuing to suffer and can no longer open his business and can only do online sales because he can't have an actual open business in Colorado anymore because of the persecution he's receiving because he won't do a customized message on his cakes for a transgender individual. And it's the third time he's been sued. Baronel Stutzman lost her florist business in Washington State because she would not do flowers for a same-sex marriage. 
She eventually lost her business and had to retire. Three-on-three creatives, Lori Smith, has been before the Supreme Court, and Alliance Defending Freedom continues to take her case, and there's going to be a ruling possibly this summer because Lori Smith will not do a customized website for a same-sex wedding. Christians who have to take a stand right here in America, a teacher who got fired in Brownsburg School District. I lived 15 minutes from Brownsburg. My son's orthodontist is in Brownsburg. This is conservative red state Indiana. And in Brownsburg School District, a teacher got fired because the transgender students wanted to be called a certain name and the teacher wouldn't do it because it would be denying the truth. It would be telling a lie. And that teacher got fired. We're experiencing things we never thought we had experienced, but Jesus said, expect persecution. It's going to come because of me. My point isn't to be a doomsdayer and to be a naysayer. We have hope in Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone, we will overcome the world. We understand the tribulation. We are preparing our young people, our grandchildren, our children in ways that we never thought we would have to, but we have to give them the reasons why they believe what they believe, and we have to model it in front of them because they are going to have to make decisions that we never had to make. They're going to face things that we never had to face. But they, as believers, first of all, we want them to trust Christ as their Savior, and then as believers, we want them to be strong in their faith, Why do we have a youth group? Why do we have a youth department? Why do we have children's Sunday schools? Because we want our children grounded in the faith, knowing why they believe what they believe, and that the Bible is the word of God, and they can continue to take a stand, and through Christ, they can overcome the world. Why do we have a Kids for Truth that has a program on Wednesday night, and those kids saying, holy, holy, holy. And we've got to sing it with them. They need to know that. They need to understand that. Those are the very words of Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And not that long afterward, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And it's hard for us to imagine our grandchildren, our children, being called of God into a vocational ministry and facing hundreds and thousands of miles away from us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have to be willing because Christ told us that we cannot love this world. We have to set our affections on things above. We have to seek first the kingdom of God, and sometimes that involves our children. And we have people in our congregation who have experienced mission trips and have experienced being on the mission field firsthand. And not every mission field experiences the same level of pressure, but we support missionaries like the Kims who are in Myanmar who experience levels of resistance that are hard for us to comprehend, and yet they're publishing Bibles in their national language. They're building a building and training nationals and had a graduation less than a month ago with over 30 graduates who are going into the country of Myanmar and planting churches. And we have an opportunity to support that. We have an opportunity to support a Carlos Rubio who goes down into the Amazon, into the Napo River, and helps those churches, those little villages along the river, In primitive places, and they have the gospel. And we have a part in that. And there's a level of persecution and resistance that they face and hardship. We as Christians, many times, we have such weak testimonies because we 
don't believe. We don't take a stand. We don't live out our faith like we should. We don't have confidence in God and His Word and in Jesus Christ like we should. And no wonder then we don't face any resistance. I'm not saying that we should go out and pick a fight. I'm not saying that we should go out and be obnoxious and, you know, make mountains out of molehills or take hard stands on things which the Bible doesn't declare or teach as doctrine or principle or promise or command. I'm not saying that we go out and just pick fights and, and, and claim persecution where really we started the fight in a way that we really didn't need to. We don't have to be a crusader everywhere we go. I met a guy in Terre Haute. We live in Terre Haute and he was obnoxious. He would do street preaching and sidewalk evangelism. And not only did he have bad BO, but he was just absolutely obnoxious in his evangelism. And then he would come to church on Sundays and claim that he had all this persecution all week long. But if you saw the way he conducted himself on the street corners and on the sidewalks, you would realize no wonder, no wonder people were turned off by his evangelism because the way he did it. We don't take the truth and put it on the end of a pitchfork and shove it down people's throats and say, swallow this. Okay? But we do take a stand for what is right. We do take a stand for the truth of the Word of God and we speak the truth in love and we kind of let the chips fall where they may, trusting a holy God and an almighty God and a providential God to work in a way that only He can in to deliver or to take us through that fiery trial of persecution or whatever it may be. We must hold firm to the foundational, fundamental doctrines of the Word of God, to the commands, the promises, and the principles of the Word of God. We must hold to what the Bible teaches regarding right and wrong. We must be firm regarding God's creative design and order for the universe and of the institutions that he created and ordained and defined and validated, such as marriage, the family, the church, male and female, and human life. We continue to take a stand for those things according to God's word, the way God defined them the way God created them, the way God designed them. We continue to take a stand for the foundational, fundamental doctrines of the Word of God, for God's clear commands and principles and promises in His Word. And that may mean fewer people in the pews. I realize that. That may mean less offering in the plates. I realize that. But I'd rather be right and true and faithful and obedient to the Word of God, than to have thousands of people in mega dollars and be disobedient and compromising and full of false teaching and false doctrine that condemns people's eternal souls to an eternal hell. And I don't take that lightly. This is a serious obligation and ministry and responsibility. And I know a message like this can be hard to, for us to swallow. We're here in John 15, and I realize that this can be a hard message sometimes for us to swallow. But it would be wrong for me as a pastor to not declare the truth and the whole counsel of the Word of God. And I want to do so in the right way. I want to do it in the right spirit. But it would be wrong for me to not help our young couples in their marriages or to help singles with their marriages. It would be wrong for me to not declare the truth of the Word of God concerning morality and right and wrong 
concerning commands and principles and foundational fundamental doctrines, if I don't teach those things, I stand before a holy God and I have him held into account for how I handled the truth. And I refuse with the Lord's help to be a compromising preacher. I don't get it always all, all right all the time. I don't always do everything exactly the way I should. And I've got five other people who live in my house who can point out the things where dad's inconsistent or husband's inconsistent. And I realize that. And that's okay because I, I live with that all the time and that's all right. I need that accountability. But we have a responsibility as believers to take the truth uncompromisingly, faithfully, lovingly, and we have to expect some measure of resistance, some measure of persecution. We don't look for it. We don't go out of our way to, to try to become a martyr. But there are times where it's just going to come in the providence of God. We can't expect to receive some measure of persecution when we live for the Lord. When we take a stand for what is right, when we are obedient to God's word. First Tim, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3 and verse number 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I realize it may just be as a young person, mom or dad said to do this or not do this. Mom and dad are not there. Mom and dad are out to eat or at some activity and big brother or big sister or little brother or little sister says, let's try this. Let's do this. Let's go here. Let's do that. That may be the only measure of persecution right now. It may be at work when somebody hands you something and says, hey, try this. It's a lot of fun. It may be on the internet, it may be a swipe or a click or going someplace and then it takes us in places that we shouldn't go and involves us with people we shouldn't be involved with and then we find out that the 13-year-old little girl that's on the other side of the internet is actually a 45-year-old creepy man who then kidnaps and exploits. Have we not seen that in our culture? And mom and dad said, don't go there on the internet. Don't talk to that stranger. It used to be you don't talk to the stranger on the sidewalk outside your house. Now it's don't talk to the stranger on the internet because they're not who they say they are. And a little girl or a little boy gets an appointment to meet somebody in the darkness of the night, in the shadows somewhere, and it turns out that they're kidnapped or raped or worse. It's a sad world in which we live. The exploitation, the human trafficking, and all that goes on. We think that those are somewhere somewhere far away and they never come home. But we hear more and more of the stories of the internet. We have to be aware of the dangers that are out there. It may mean that we have to say no sometimes and it may cost us a friendship. It may cost us a place that everybody wants to go. You know how it's been said for years, if everybody wants to jump off a cliff or take a swim off the dock just because everybody else is doing it, should we do it too? No. But don't we have that pressure with social media and all the things that are out there today and the internet and the commercials and the advertisements? Do this and you'll have fun. Everybody is doing it and there's no harm. It will never hurt you. It never hurt me. It never hurt anybody else. We hear those lies. That could be the only measure of persecution that we face as we say no to those activities and we say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. 
I realize it may cost me some friendships, it may cost me some fun, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And God will honor that. And there's a crown awaiting us in glory that we will then give to Christ and worship and leave at his feet. And we'd much rather hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, than to hear the empty applause and the vain applause of this world, which is really just fake and superficial, because the world, in its nature, is in opposition to Christ. We have to expect persecution. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the end of the excuses for the persecutors. We won't have time to go there this morning. Lord willing, next week we'll look at that as Jesus deals with the persecutors and the end of their excuses. But once again, I am wanting to remind us of John 16 and verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It's not about us. Okay, so it's not about God getting on our side. It's about us being on God's side. We are on the Lord's side. And we must be faithful and continue to be obedient and take a stand for what is right according to the Word of God. May that be true of each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this tremendous passage that teaches us. Lord, Christ knew what the disciples were going to face as Christ went to the cross and rose again and as the disciples went out and preached the gospel and turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. They did so in the midst of persecution, even being told by authorities to quit preaching. As Paul even went to a Roman prison, chained to Roman soldiers, he continued to declare the truth. Lord, we don't know what the future holds for us here in America, Lord, we see some pressures from outside, we see pressures from inside, Lord, we can expect some measure of persecution, Lord, help us not to give up hope, help us, Lord, to stand firmly, lovingly, compassionately, but firmly, Lord, upon the word of God. Lord, I pray that you do your work in our hearts, in our midst, as we sing this closing song, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our closing hymn will be 276. We sang Jesus Paid It All just a short time ago. Jake is going to come and lead us in stanza number one of Jesus Paid It All, hymn number 276.